Welcome to episode 216 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. You came in hot on that intro this time. I feel like there's a little bit more oomph right there. You're excited for this episode. I am. I'm, I'm stoked. It's a good topic. I'm glad we're picking up from last week. It's good. It's good. We are. Think, it, the benefit this week is last week, it was like Saturday afternoon. You're like, let's talk about this. That's true. And I had like a day to think about it. Now I've had like a whole week to think about it. So <laughs> maybe I'm setting the expectations too high at this point. Okay. So here's what you just said. And I love this about us. You basically just said this podcast could be almost exponentially better if we did more planning and thought about the stuff we're going to talk about a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to like get funding to not work anymore though. So, so just think about all the latent potential, everybody who's ever listened, just imagine that we were about 10 times better than we actually were. And yeah, there you go. If you'd like to hear that podcast and you happen to be like a Tony Stark level level trillionaire and want to fund my life so I can podcast full time, then please let me know. But I don't think we have any listeners like that out there. Listen, this has been an accomplished year for me in many ways, not least of which is because I actually understood that entire reference that you just made. I know. For for the the, uh, uninformed listener, Jesse has begun to reach the pinnacles of nerddom. So he understood the Marvel comic reference I just made. Uh, We had a long conversation about the uh, benefits of a certain character, no no spoilers here, but a certain character making a reappearance on Mandalorian. Uh, So it's it's pretty crazy. The the next step I feel like is we have to get you into Star Trek. That's like, that'll finalize the trifecta of, uh, of the nerd, the nerddom. That's something I know honestly next to nothing about. And I know though, well, what I do know, I guess, is the great debate among the different versions. Is that the right word? Seasons? Worlds? What do we, how do we describe like the different iterations of Star Trek? Usually, usually it's defined by the captain because it's usually each series has like a distinct captain. So there's a lot of debate and argument between which captain's better. Is it Picard or Kirk? It's clearly Picard. Um, but, <laughs> but they kind of threw that for a loop in this most recent uh, iteration uh, because there's like a different captain every like every season so far has had a different captain of the ship. So, but yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there, Jesse. How have you, well, that's something for me to look forward to. How did we get this far without you saying, look at me? I don't know. I don't know. Look at me. Look at me. I'm L- the captain listen, now. Listen, Linda. <laughs> we seamlessly though, I love you introduced that. And then like, you just seamlessly went into a commentary on like your own perspective on that. Yeah. That was great. That's what we do. Yeah. Speaking All of right. which, we have Speaking some affirmations and we're keeping it totally positive today. We've actually just jettisoned the denials altogether because we're so thankful for so many things and God is good to us. So we said, you know what? Let's just do affirmations. Yeah. And before we do affirmations, I have an exciting announcement. We are welcoming another new show to the Society of Reform Podcasters. So this is a show that's called Seeker Start. And honestly, when I first heard about this show, I was a little bit skeptical because I thought it was going to be like, 
basically like the seeker sensitive version of podcasting. So if you are wondering if it's that, it is not. So just go listen to the first episode. They really kind of clarify what they're talking about. More or less, it's a show kind of for new Christians, but it's distinctly for Christians. So I won't go further than that. All of the episodes should be available in the mega feed. There's only five so far. Uh, so it's a good time to kind of like catch up and to sort of get on the ground floor. So it's a great show. Um, it, they're not brand new podcasters, but it is a brand new podcast. So check it out. It's called Seeker Start. Uh, it's available in the mega feed now. So Jesse, why don't we start with your affirmation? All right, let's do it. So I've there's many things in life that I'm on the search for perpetually. And because we're in this certain time of year where everything changes, our outlook, our decorations, our attitudes, some for some people, and our music, I'm always on the hunt for like the quintessential Christmas music album. And part of this is something that if you've listened to us talk for any length of time, I've mentioned this before, and I'm kind of back into it because every year I hope to find like the next awesome thing, the thing that really satisfies my soul, so to speak, with respect to this type of music, because I don't want to sound like a Grinch or a Grouch, but I'm not a big Christmas music person. And there's, there's no like theological statement there. I'm just not really into it. How, how yeah. on a scale of one to 10, how into Christmas music, like in the sense of when November 30th moves over into De- December 1st, how excited are you for that? Because you can like officially listen to Christmas music. Well, your sister begins listening to Christmas music, uh, like <laughs> May 12th. Yeah, and that's true. So, so by the time we get to November 1st, I'm pretty well sick of it. I'm not a big fan of uh, what I call the happy slappy Christmas music. Um, I, I like the just the sort of saccharine commercialized seasonal music, um, like Christmas shoes. Like I, oh, that well, just that's doesn't like especially bad. Like, or so, like that that weird song where the dude runs into his ex girlfriend in the in the store and they buy like a twelve pack of beer and drink it in the car. That's a weird. What song is that? You don't know that song? That's got to be a country song. No, I don't remember <laughs> the name of it. Uh, I do like Christmas hymns though. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Christmas hymns because most of the time, good Christmas hymns are rich with incarnation theology for sure. Uh, and we don't get that a lot the rest of the year. So it's nice this time of year in, in midwinter, no reason season. Um, it's nice to have uh, some more like theologically rich incarnation music. Right. Yeah. Well, some, I mean, I'm always down for theologically rich incarnation music. That should be a bumper sticker by itself. Yes. Yeah. Keep, keep the theologically rich Christmas music in Christmas. Um so I'm with you, of course, like I don't, there's a lot of music that's just like around the holiday things about like, I don't understand why there's, we have several songs in our culture about it just being cold outside and somehow that's Christmas music when that has necessarily nothing to do, of course, with celebrating the actual holiday, except for the fact that in many places it is actually cold. All right. Anyway, here's what I'm affirming with. I've been on the search. I think I'm, I'm not entirely ready to call it, but I'm getting pretty close to calling what I think is the quintessential album Christmas album for me and yes. I'm affirming with a Charlie Brown Christmas by the Vince Guaraldi trio because nice for me note for note this is just the best but part of that is because if you're going to include like O Tenenbaum or what child is this or little drummer boy I'd prefer that you don't actually sing the lyrics I prefer like yeah. the jazz oriented style which I've affirmed before But here's the irony for me. The last thing I'll say about this album is I think it is note for note, the best Christmas album, but it actually incidentally excludes what I think is the best Christmas hymn. And that for me 
is Oh Holy Night. So nice. I absolutely love that hymn. And talk about like the rich theological content. There's so much in there. In that lovely lift in the, you know, fall on your knees, that part in the melody, my goodness, is like so beautiful. Such like a rising, swelling attitude. Like to me, when I hear that song, I fall into doxology. Like that's a worship expression yeah. in music that's been appropriate in the Christmas season, but it need not necessarily be the case. So yeah. I'm totally affirming with the a Charlie Brown Christmas, the expanded edition, the remastered one, Vince Guaraldi trio is like amazing. So like the musicality is, is really, really good. And I think that's why I love it. It's like a different expression of some of these traditional yeah. pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Holy Night is probably one of my favorite Christmas hymns. Uh, and you're right. Just the way that the music is structured it really drives your attention upwards, like even just the yes. crescendo and the, the the high pitch of the notes um, really does kind of drive your attention upwards. That's a great song. It's a good affirmation, Jesse. Yeah, thank you. It's something about that piece is like you're, you're singing, you're recognizing there's the the second verse of speaking about the world being marred in yeah. sin. And like whenever you get to like that pre-chorus, first of all, there's like an amazing range in that song. Anybody's tried to sing that thing? It's like you almost have to like pick your poison on what key you put it in because either it's going to be too low or too high for you at some point. Most that's yeah. an amazing range, which I do not. But it's so it's got all this wonderful lift up and down. But there's all of this work in the chorus that's setting the context. If you go up and read the lyrics and then you get to the fall on your knees, it's, it's almost as if the melody itself is driving you to the floor to in worship, both in posture and in expression, and articulation of what's being said. I love music like that, where it is, you know what it's like? It's almost like a liturgy in a, in a single song. And so yeah. I just think there's something like really glorious and beautiful about that. So whether or not it, it just, it just happens to be a hymn that's associated with Christmas. That's fine. But maybe we should, maybe we can retitle it. Like just incarnation music is yeah. awesome. There you go. Yeah. How about you? What are you affirming with? Uh, well, before I move on to my affirmation, I just want to say this, cause that this is my annual reminder that when someone uh, asks you uh, or says something about the spirit of Christmas, it's appropriate to remind them that the spirit of Christmas uh, includes beating up uh, Christological heretics. So I'll just throw that out there. <laughs> so we're talking about incarnation music. Yeah, you know, it's fair. It's almost certain that St. Nicholas did not punch Arius in the face, but that's the true spirit of Christmas right there. But the sentiment, right? Mm -hmm. The sentiment is there. And yeah. I think we can say safely, that really is the gift that keeps on giving all year long. So it you is. can take that and pull that into any season. It's true. It's certainly a, a valuable lesson there. So, yes. okay. So now that we've, so, we got that out of the way, what are you affirming So with? I'm affirming something that now that we're coming, hopefully down to the end of coronavirus with the announcement of some vaccinations coming soon. I wish that I had thought of this and begun to do this and affirmed it like I don't know, March, when we all started getting locked in our houses. But I'm affirming teaching yourself karate. So I, uh, I'm i very nostalgic for some movies. And one of the movies that I love the best out of all movies is The Karate Kid. Um, I'm not such a big fan of Karate Kid 2. Karate Kid 3 might as well not have happened. And this travesty called The Next Karate Kid. Let's just pretend that that's like a totally different it happened in a different universe, but the original karate kid, uh, I don't know if it was cause I was a scrawny kid that like had a mouth and got beat up a lot. So it resonated with me, but whatever it was, it just really loved that movie. So I've, I've been watching on Netflix. There's a show called Cobra Kai, which is basically, uh, that, that those characters 30 years later, it sort of falls into this 
new wave of like shows from the 80s and 90s and like the where are they now kind of continuing stories. I don't know that I would recommend the show for everybody. Sometimes has a little bit of crass language that uh, some people may not appreciate. I wish it didn't. But one of the things it's done is it's driven me to really be interested in, in karate. So I found a YouTube channel that is Global Marts, uh, Global Martial Arts University. And Global Martial Arts University is uh, actually an online program you can pay for. Uh, and you can you can pay and you can actually get certifications. You can do official rank belts and stuff like you can actually progress without ever going into a physical uh, dojo. Although I, I'm not sure, you know, I've done some martial arts in the past. You've as well. I'm not sure that I would want to do like real serious martial arts without actually having a sparring partner and someone to physically help me with my form and stuff. But they offer some free courses on YouTube. So you can look this up on YouTube. The one that I'm. Uh, working through right now is called uh, Shotokan Karate Follow Along Class, and it's basically a white belt through green belt class. They're like 30 minutes. It's a good workout. It's fun. Um, you know, so I, I'm just affirming this. I wish I'd started it like seven months ago when we started with coronavirus. And I was like, what am I going to do with all my time? I should have been like, oh, why don't I learn karate? But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you do like the punching drills and I'm realizing that there are muscles in my shoulder that I forgot existed because now they're all, <laughs> they're super sore. But what's really nice is when you work through all of these, the different forms you're doing, it's karate as it was developed originally is designed to be a full body, right. you know, a full body martial martial arts. So as you do the different forms and you learn different kicks and stuff, you're exercising pretty much every muscle in your body in different ways. So check it out. I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's easy. Uh, it's, it's not super difficult. Um, and it's just a, a, it's just an interesting thing to do. I haven't run into, I, I do want to acknowledge that there are some legitimate concerns with the sp sort of spirituality aspect that's uh, embedded in certain martial arts. I haven't run into any of that. I've only looked at a couple of the lessons. Um, but it really does seem like this group is really more focused on the, um, on the physicality of it. Um, they, they, you know, they've talked about sort of this idea of chi or ki that you, you hear in some martial arts. They don't, they haven't really talked about that, even though they've talked about some of the same kinds of exercises, you know, shouting when you punch that kind of stuff. Um, I haven't encountered anything spiritual as an element of it. So, um, yeah, check it out. Uh, it's, uh, global martial arts university and you can find it on YouTube. And uh, what lesson does the crane kick come in? That's the first lesson. <laughs> They're like, you got to learn this crane kick because apparently, apparently the crane kick is a kick that cannot be defended against, uh, which makes no sense to me because he should have just swept that one leg that was on the ground. Sweep the there, leg. There's just one leg on the ground. You just clearly you sweep that leg. So it's instead he just instead he just walked straight forward into the into his foot. So I don't know. Although I will make one point, and you'll appreciate this as someone who's studied martial arts in the past. Uh, in the first episode of Cobra Kai that uh, Danny Lee Rousseau, who's, who's the Karate Kid, and then Johnny Lawrence, who is the, the, the bad guy or the nemesis in the original Karate Kid, Johnny Lawrence is sort of sort of the protagonist now in the new series. But in the very first encounter that they run into each other, that they've, they've seen him for 30 years, you know, everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're that guy that won the karate tournament. And Johnny Lawrence is like, yeah, it was an illegal strike to the face. Which is if you've done martial arts and like tournaments, it's true. Like you're not supposed to kick people in the face, generally speaking. So the 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 winning kick would have been an illegal strike, probably. Interesting. I'm just I'm trying desperately to follow along and pretend like I know what you're talking about because 
as some know about me, that's a movie I have not seen. Yeah, I'm I'm disappointed in that, Jesse. So <laughs> there's we this will rectify of, this. I think we've talked about this before. There's this group of like it's 80s movies 80s movies i guess that yeah. i i never saw but that are like really part of the zeitgeist and that's one of them i guess it comes up yeah. on occasion of course like i know all the references because he makes them like wax a car right at some point yeah that's the wax on wax off thing yeah but it, but that's brilliant though like and that's like a defensive move like it's the it's yeah the sweep, it's, the... it's a low block like right. like that's that's the thing that's brilliant about it as and you'll learn this <laughs> the reason that just to bring it back the oh, reason that great. an online martial arts course can be successful is because what you're doing with these repetitive punches is you're training your muscles to have muscle memory right. to do certain things in response to stimulus without thinking about it. And so the famous scene in the movie is he's having him wax the car and you know, sand the floor and paint the fence, all these different things. And he's doing that. And then there's this amazing scene where he just starts punching at him and he says, he says, wax the floor and he kicks at him and he goes to, he does the motion to wax the floor and he blocks it. And then he just throws all these punches and kicks at him and he's able to just defend against all of them. Now that probably, that kind of training probably wouldn't actually work, but the, the idea of building muscle memory through repetitive motion definitely is a, a core principle of martial arts training. I really thought you were about to segue that into theology and then to our topic. It seemed no. ripe for you to do that. Nah, nah. <laughs> We've we've made the the muscle memory analogy with the catechisms enough. They don't need to hear that again. Uh, I love your self control and ability to self edit right there. Fruit of the spirit in action. Love. I ones. just got so excited about Karate Kid. I stopped thinking about theology for a second. So I so you and I have never talked about Karate Kid. I am impressed by your love of Karate Kid. I had no I idea. Love the Karate Kid. When I was in seminary, uh, shortly before I married your sister. I was moving out of my, uh, I had a dorm and I had a single room in the dorm and I was moving out of the dorm and moving into uh, the apartment where after we got married, your wife would join me and live with me and, or your sister, not your wife, my future <laughs> wife. Anyways, and literally I was in the middle of moving uh... and I walked out of, out of my single bedroom and my roommate was watching Karate Kid on TV and I literally set my boxes down and sat down and watched the entire movie. I just stopped what I was doing. That's and, and that's that's what happens when the Karate Kid comes up. I love that movie. That's great. Everybody has that movie. That's just a great question to ask somebody is what movie when you see it, like you're either flipping through the television or you're walking through a room and it's on stops you dead. Yeah. And you just sit down without question and watch it yep. no matter where it's at. Yeah. 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 Well, one one last thing before we move into our topic. <laughs> I didn't want to include this as a denial. We were trying to stay positive, but I did yes. want to be fair. So last week, as my denial, I denied what I was calling failure to steward your platform. And I used the example of a podcast called The London Lyceum specifically because they had sort of welcomed on a well-known Christological heretic named Dale Tuggy, who is a Unitarian. He denies the Trinity, denies the Incarnation, um, all sorts of things. And I don't, I don't, this is not me saying I, I, recant of anything I said last week. But to be fair, uh, they did record somewhat of a response episode to some of uh, Dale Tuggy's uh, teachings, and that played this last week. I still want to say, uh, and I, I still agree with what I said last week, that there are probably people who are only ever going to hear the episode with Dale Tuggy. And so I still do think it's incumbent on people who have a platform if you're going to give voice to some sort of um, some sort of teaching that's not correct or not orthodox, that that should be accompanied with a response within the same 
same context. Um, right. Because there, like I said, there are probably people who only heard the interview with Del Tuggy, where they basically gave him an open door to uh, undercut the gospel, undercut Trinitarian theology, undercut the historic traditions of the church, um, and they'll never hear the response episode. So I still think London Lyceum is a great show. I still think you should check it out. But I wanted to be fair and make sure that I acknowledged they did indeed respond to what he had to say. And, you know, we, we got a, I, I got a fair number of people who reached out to me and said they've experienced that same kind of situation in other podcasts or other venues. And we're happy to hear someone kind of talking about it because we didn't talk about it last week. But there is an element in the Bible where we're accountable not to associate ourselves with false teaching and false teachers. Right. John says not to welcome false teachers into your house which has more to do with uh, acknowledging their teaching than it does with being hospitable to people. Um, and, and so there's a biblical command to, to interact with false teachers sort of from a distance and not to give the impression that you are welcoming or engaging or um, endorsing their teaching. And I think that sometimes when we have this attempt and this desire, which is a good desire to be charitable and to sort of allow a person to speak in their own voice and to represent their own views, um, we have this tendency to, to think to take that a little bit too far. So check it out. It's a great show. Um, but I did want to be honest with uh, the listeners about the fact they did indeed respond to uh, Mr. Tuggy's teaching. Dr. Tuggy, I think. That, that's great. I think that part of this is not to sound like an old man, like shaking his fist at the kids who are running on his lawn. But I think part of this is like even in our own culture or Western culture generally, we've moved away from this idea that we can just have like good dialogue where we evaluate ideas and have robust conversation, even passionate conversation and still be able to walk away and have it, having resulted in civil dialogue. Yeah. So I think we've, the pendulum has swung the other way, even among Christians where we feel like well, we really need to be like super, super accommodating. We need to like let somebody say everything and not, not try to push back too much. And then like maybe in a separate area or a different space or a different time, then we kind of have our conversation, evaluate that in a gentle way. It's okay to have dynamic conversation right. and it's okay. In fact, that should happen in real time. So I think like we said, I don't remember if we said this either on or off the air, but if any idea is really worth having, it's worth it being able to come under, you know, some degree of measurement and evaluation. So this is hard because I think people who put together like serial format stuff like us can sometimes, like we said before, struggle with, well, how do we do this so that we right. can kind of basically what we're doing is we're saying that we validate somebody as a person and we want to evaluate their ideas, but we don't want to just come across as like, well, we had you on the show so that we could put you on blast. Right. And yet there must be a space. Like we have to just be willing to say, this is a space where ideas are evaluated according to scripture. And that's the kind of conversation we're going to have right now. Right. So that means that it's taking place in real time as opposed to like, well, we're going to just kind of isolate this and make it. Cause otherwise it comes across, I think what you're saying is it comes across inadvertently as if they're condoning it. And that's part of the problem. Right. Yeah. It, it sort of presents this image that, uh, the issue is really not that big of a deal. Um, and, and you know, it, if there's one criticism that I have of sort of, uh, the academic theologians out there, um, is that there are at times, I think, uh, situations where our desire to be collegiate, um, in sort of the academic, you know, to be good members of the, of the right. academy, um, I think over, overrides some of our more godly instincts to 
punch a heretic in the face when necessary to bring it back to St. Nicholas. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't endorse actually punching heretics in the face. Uh, although there probably are some contexts that that might be appropriate, but sometimes you have to verbally punch a heretic in the face. And, and there are, there are Facebook groups I've been a part of in the past, um, that, a lot of times, uh, those kinds of disagreements, because other areas where there was agreements, uh, those agreements were papered over. And I actually ended up leaving those groups because I, I wasn't willing to say, I'm not going to address Christological heresy, or I'm not going to endorse a situation where I have to pretend that I agree with a Roman Catholic about how salvation right. works because we are both on the same side right. of, a, of an apologetics argument or something like that. So that, I think that's enough of that. But I did want to, like I said, I just want to bring that forward. They did address uh, the teaching, albeit not uh, in the same context, which is what I think would have been a wiser move. I think so too. I agree with that. Well, we're into a, the second episode on our conversation of the Holy Spirit's role and the application of redemption. And hopefully others are tracking with us. It actually turned incidentally, like almost like talk about playing some jazz. We kind of just decided at the end of that episode from last week that it was going to be a series all of a sudden. That was part one of our conversation. So we're going to try to jump back in and continue on yes. what we've been talking about. But we actually covered, I went back and listened to it. Um, you sounded mellifluous. My voice sounded whiny, I think. But we <laughs> we uh, we covered a lot of ground, actually. I mean, we, yeah. and, and so I think that's really good setup. So I'm hoping we can kind of like just jump back in with the same kind of momentum that we had finished off with last week, because we covered a lot of ground in terms of the economy of the Trinity, of the missional aspect of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. So I'd encourage anybody to go back and refamiliarize yourself with that conversation, because we're going to try just to hit the ground running here. Yes. And, you know, I, I want to just say this at the outset. So the, the issue that we are trying to address is specifically what is the Holy Spirit's role, the, the, uh, the work that terminates on the Holy Spirit in the Ordo Salutis. Right. And I did have a couple people who reached out to me who kind of kind of sort of seemed like they felt like this was a little bit artificial, that, that we were kind of injecting something into somewhere where it didn't necessarily need to be. So I want to read specifically the passage in Romans about the golden chain, right? The golden chain is this, this order of salvation that Paul lays out in, in uh, Romans nine. And I want to back up just a little bit because, you know, the, the, however you phrase it, whether you talk about how there's three rules of interpretation, it's context, 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 or my, my favorite, just read a little bit more. A lot of times when we are talking about a particular verse, we unintentionally abstract it from the other. So when we, when we have a conversation about the Ordo Salutis and we jump straight to uh, verse 29 of Romans 8, right? We forget that verse 28 27, 26, that those all happen in a sequence. So starting in verse 26, it says, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for right. we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this passage here starts with the work of the Spirit in edifying and encouraging and strengthening the saints. And that takes place through, particularly through suffering. And that's why, you know, that's why we can find comfort in these words that for all things work together for good for those who love God. And that leads directly into Paul's reasoning in relation to the so-called golden chain. So the Holy Spirit... Even the people who might say this topic is a little forced because we're kind of taking a topic and we're sort of infusing new mythology into it. Even those people would affirm uh, that new mythology has to be infused in everything in some sense, because anything that the father is, is engaged in, of the course. son's engaged in, and the spirit's engaged in. Right. But it's not it's not too far of a stretch to say that because of the proximity of some teaching on the Holy Spirit to where the sort of classical text is on the Ordo Salutis, we really have to engage this topic. So I'm glad that we're doing it. There wasn't anybody who was like, you guys are, you guys are heretics. We're trying to do this, but (laughs) I don't think that this is as far of a reach as it might seem at first. We're not doing this just to try to, you know, it's not like we were like, we should do something on the spirit, but we can't think of anything to do. So let's just do the Ordo Salutis, right. but, but the spirit instead. That's that's not at all what we're trying to do. We're trying to take passages like this seriously and realize and recognize that good Trinitarian theology requires us to see the spirit working anywhere that the Father and the Spirit and the Son is. Yes. And as we talked about in the first version of this series to emphasize as well the particularity or the economy of the Trinity in certain functions as it relates to how this, the idea of redemption and salvation is applied. I'm really glad that you went to Romans uh, 28, or Romans 28, 828 is the verse that everybody quotes, uh, Romans 8, because I think that that passage, there's actually, most of the time we interpret that, we actually create a, a bear market for the Holy Spirit because we underemphasize his role. And, and the reason I say that is because in 26, when it says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We could stop right there. And really, that itself is like a treasure trove of, of data for us in understanding what the Spirit right. does for us. That in our representative weakness, really, the Spirit is the one overcoming that in substantial ways to work a miracle out in our lives in many different facets. Right. But what happens is, I think, is we read past that verse, maybe perhaps a little bit too quickly, and we go to the second part of it where it says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit right. himself intercedes with us with the growings too deep for words. And here's the hypothesis I have. We get too stuck on the word, words. So we think, oh, what the Holy Spirit is doing here is it's just that time when you want to express something deep and profound to God. Maybe all you can do is groan Godwardly. And so what the Spirit does is just fill that gap in. He just translates right. for you. And that is true, but that's not what's being emphasized here. You know, I think what Paul is emphasizing is it's not just about words. He's, he's saying it's not just that you don't have the right things to say to God and you lack vocabulary to express it. It's that you actually don't know how to pray at all. Right. You don't have to do anything at all spiritual. And it's the Holy Spirit, which because he's efficacious, he is applying this work, the blessings of Christ onto you in a way that is so profound that that itself is a miracle. And so therefore the Holy Spirit ought to get, I'm going to use this word, credit for the work that he is doing, even though 
the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is that he's willing to sit almost in the eaves to be anonymous, right. to point to the Father and to the Son. And so I think sometimes that is what puts him in a bear market for us is because we just kind of underemphasize him because that is his kind of natural mode of operation. Right. But it is powerful, it is mighty, and it is present. And it is so efficacious and seamless that it's easy, easy for us to actually fail to recognize that it's he that's doing this great work in us all right. along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's no, uh, it's no accident then that, you know, one of the most famous, uh, kind of single crochet it on a, a pillow and put it on your grandma's couch verses is verse 31. It says, what then shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right on. Right. And so the, the end point of this passage is that because the Holy Spirit in, uh, uh, intercedes and helps us in our weaknesses, the will of God is accomplished, which is our salvation. And if if all of the power of God, if all the power of, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is for us, then who could possibly be against us? Right. And so, you know, we, we talked a lot about last week that the, the, we got as far as regeneration and the idea we wanted to land on and the idea we wanted to nail. And in a lot of ways, everything we're going to say, you know, here kind of follows in suit with that is that the Holy Spirit does the miracle of regeneration. The Father and the Son are participating in that. They're not absent from that. But the Holy Spirit is the one who gets the credit in Scripture, air quotes, credit in Scripture for for regenerating us, for giving us a new heart, for for transforming our will so that we want to follow Jesus Christ. Everything that we're going to talk about tonight happens after that. But... All of that happens by the uh, by the immutable and the uh, the indefatigable. I love that word. Well the, done. The un- unovercomable power and decree of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, and so all of this stuff that comes in this passage, the Holy Spirit does that. So we talked about regeneration, and we're going to start tonight by talking a, a bit about union with Christ, because one of the things that I think is underemphasized by modern kind of uh, popular reformed theology. I don't mean popular in terms of like popular writing. Um, Michael Horton has some really popular level writing. This is not, that's not what I'm talking about. But in terms of the kind of reformed theology you tend to run across in blogs, in Facebook groups, on podcasts, union with Christ is really underemphasized, I think. Yes. And, and part of that is because most of us in that kind of world came into Reformed theology, not through the classic sources, but through people who we thought were representing the classic sources, but had never really interacted with them. So I'm thinking of people like Mark Driscoll, Tulian Chavidian, in some senses, John Piper, um, John MacArthur, some some of these people, Wayne Grudem, some of these people who who they themselves, I'm sure, have read these sources, but didn't make much use of them in a lot of their popular presentations. We came into Reformed theology through those venues, and and it was all about uh, it was all about justification by faith alone. Even R.C. Sproul, in some ways, does this, although to a lesser degree than some others. It was all about justification by faith alone, and and you can see that by how much people point to Luther in talking about justification, right. yep, exactly. which is is totally warranted. Go back to kind of the the genesis of the Reformation, but the more we talk about Luther and focus on justification. In some ways, the further away from Calvin's central focus, which was union with Christ, we get a little bit further away from that when we get almost obsessive about justification. Um, I think for good reasons, but I think sometimes we do get a little bit obsessive about justification. So 
I don't want to put you on the spot, although I do kind of want to put you on the spot. <laughs> give us give us your rundown kind of of what what the doctrine of union with Christ is. <laughs> I love this. Cut to all I'm thinking is like cut to John Owen, right? Saying like, "What? Are you serious? Nobody's talking about this stuff?" Yeah, exactly. By the way, if if people are looking for something to read that's like intensely pastoral and practical on the union of Christ, they should just pick up The Glory of Christ by John right. Owen. That there's so much good stuff there. So here's what I would say about that. Um and I'm going to put this in the context of what we're talking about specifically here with the role of the Holy Spirit. I would say this by the Spirit's life-giving work, believers share in the benefits of Christ's saving work and they're renewed after the image of God. And they experience the fullness of life in unbreakable communion with the living God. That's what it means to be in Christ. And again, right. it's not, I love that word, that preposition that Paul uses because he's not saying alongside, he's not saying with, he's saying in Christ, this idea of right. having your life, your identity, your eternal salvation hidden in Christ means that we are now able to appropriate everything that he earned is now synonymous with who we are as people, as God's children. And that bond is indissolvable and unbreakable, but it happens because of the spirit's life giving work. That's, that's the connection. You know, I always think of like that really amazing colloquial line from Shai Lin on his most recent album, where he's talking about the Christian and the ark of salvation and redemption. And he says, before the cross, they were saved on credit after the cross, they were saved on debit. And I'm totally with you because I think what's brilliant about what God does here is that as Reformed Christians in particular, we get a little bit fixated and fascinated with, and for good reason. Actually, I think for the reason of the T in tulip, the total depravity, we understand that so predominantly that we get caught up in this idea of what it means to be like forensically forgiven. That is such an amazing idea that amnesty, when you know you're that bad, to be granted amnesty is just like you want to run around the world just shouting to God for how great he is that he wouldn't punish you. But that's only like half the story because the benefit of being in Christ is not just being receiving forgiveness or amnesty for all of the awful things, for not just all the things you've done, but who the awfulness that you are, but being transformed in such a way that now where you had the student loan or the mortgage that you couldn't pay off, it was crushing you. That It's not just that that's been forgiven. It's that your checking account has also been filled to overflowing. Right. So that all the benefits that Christ earned, he took away the debt. He also gave you all these amazing resources. We have all the spiritual blessings to use Christ, as Paul says elsewhere. So that's like a really long answer to, I'm trying to keep it colloquial and stay away from like, the textbook theological answer though I want to give it. But I think it's this idea of having an unbreakable communion with the living God through Jesus Christ, which gives us all of the benefits of sonship and adoption that were earned by Jesus Christ, which means honestly abundant life now. And it means security in the future everlasting. Right. And you know, one of the things that I think we have to be careful with, and this is why I think sometimes we actually reason more like Lutherans than we do like reformed folk How so? is we often, um, we often focus on the legal and forensic aspects of union with Christ. And we don't think about the fact that this is a real mystical union. Yes. Yeah. You know, in some ways, um, this is, please don't stop listening after this. Let me explain myself. In some ways, marriage doesn't exist. Right. So, so that's, 
that's why when uh, a person, two people, they go to Vegas, they get married, and then they can annul it. One of the primary legal considerations uh, in, in law as to whether or not you can annul a marriage is whether or not the marriage has been consummated. And right. the reason for that is because in a certain sense, that marriage is totally made up until there's been a physical joining of those two people. And, and union with Christ can sort of have a similar element to it is that if we focus too much on the legal forensic aspect of it, then what we do is we've created this situation where it's, it's just kind of words, right? It's just a, a legal relationship, but the mystical union of Christ with his people, which by definition is mysterious. That's why it's called a mystical union is an actual real concrete union that cannot be dissolved. Right. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes into this discussion of union with Christ is that it's the Holy Spirit who creates and, and sustains that bond of Christ with his people. And so when we talk about union with Christ, you know, we talked about this in the Lord's Supper um, episode. Everything else happens not necessarily as a direct consequence of union with Christ. Uh, and when I, what I mean when I say that is, if justification was a direct consequence of union with Christ, it would simply mean that the sheer act of being united to Christ is what conveys the benefits. Right. That there, there's no, no other consideration in justification other than the fact that someone is united with Christ. That would what would be what it would be to be a direct consequence. What I mean when I say it is not a direct consequence, but is still a necessary kind of down the road in the order of things consequence is that justification is, it makes no sense. It, it's, it's non, yes, exactly. uh, it's, it's non coherent apart from this mystical real union with yes. Christ that the Holy Spirit rots. Rots? Yes. Yes. I've never used that in a, past ongoing sense like that. Anyways. Well done. All right. Um, so, so we have to understand this union and we have to understand it as a real union. Just like if, um, if I was to marry, you think about like a green card marriage, right? Two people who, who enter into a legal relationship with each other in order to obtain certain legal benefits. Well, that's a sham, right? So, so when the state recognizes that this is not a real marriage, that this is not a real union between two people, and that it's just a legal union in order to sort of steal certain benefits, they dissolve that union, and then they also dissolve the benefits. And that usually ends up in deportation or other consequences. Right. However, if that union is a real union, then there are certain legal benefits that that are conveyed to that person or, or they have access to because of that real union. Um, the other analogy I think that works really well in terms of union with Christ is if you have if you have a, a man who has $100,000 worth of student debt and you have a woman who has an infinite amount of money, let's just say it's some ridiculous amount of money, billions of dollars. When they become married, those two, those two numbers join together. And so instead of having a student loan debt of $100,000 and a bank account of a billion dollars, you have now one joint account that is a, is a combination of those two numbers. And in this case, the student loan debt is swallowed up into the account and it's erased. Now, when we have union with Christ, we're talking about our, our debt of sin. Uh, we're talking about an infinite merit versus a, a it's not an infinite, but a, a finite, finite. Uh, demerit. Those two things cancel each other out and all we're left is, is infinite merit. And it's the Holy Spirit that makes that efficacious. Um, it's right. it's not simply a legal union. It's not simply a covenant union. 
It's a it's an, a real mystical union between Christ and his people that in some senses actually finds its origin in the eternal counsel of God. Oh, it definitely right? does. So yeah. that that's a whole different topic. But we, we have to land this union with Christ element. Otherwise, the other stuff that we're going to talk about, it just doesn't it doesn't have any footing or any grounding. Right. We did a whole episode on union in Christ, which you can go back and take a look at. And this is, I would say, kind of a slight, it's tangential to this conversation. We, we emphasize some other things in that one, but here we're talking about really trying to emphasize the Holy Spirit's work right. in that process. And I want to say something that's like purposely meant to be inflammatory to make a point. And that is, uh, first of all, you stole again exactly where I wanted to go. So thank you for that. So I was like, you're saying all the good stuff. That's exactly what I wanted to say too. But there's this idea that I have that really, if you think about it, based on what you just said, Jesus is not enough. He's, he's not enough. And this is why it's inflammatory. He's not enough because podcast over. He is <laughs> that his, his death, his life and death was sufficient for all. And of course, efficient for the elect. The, a part of it that makes it efficient is the spirit's application of that. Right. And so we need the Holy spirit, but the Holy spirit is so good at doing this almost unaware that he works out redemption without fanfare. The spirit works on behalf in the name of the father and the son that it's so easy to think, well, he's kind of a lesser character in this, and that what really matters right. is what God ordained and what Jesus accomplished. And that is true, but so also, like you referenced the Pactum Salutis, this idea that from eternity past, all three parts of the Trinity were involved. So then we should be looking for, well, where's the Holy Spirit then in this? Because certainly right. he has a role to play that's of profound importance. And so the Holy Spirit, as the scripture teaches us, ushers the elect into the Father through the Son almost, almost anonymously but with a powerful readiness and without self-aggrandizement. So I love that like Calvin used to say, like the principal role of the Holy Spirit in redemption is to be, quote, a minister of Christ's liberality. I love right. that. Like this idea that he, he is ministering to us everything that Christ accomplished, but he's necessary without him. It does not get ministered to us. Yeah. And so the Holy Spirit who prepared the way under the old covenant for the coming of Christ in the fullness of time, which we're celebrating this time of year and who supplied Christ with the gifts necessary to fulfill his office as mediator is now Christ's gift to the church. Right. And that's the thing. I love what you said about this mystery because is it not crazy and almost insane to think about the fact that God has in some way implanted within us part of who he is by giving us the Holy spirit to indwell us. This is why when we say like colloquially, when you hear Christians say, well, Jesus is present in our midst. We know what they mean by that. It's this sense of that we're so finely in, in, intertwined with Christ himself through the power of the Holy Spirit that it's as if Jesus were in our presence because who searches out the mind of God except the Spirit of God? And we yeah. have that Spirit of God in us because of what Christ has accomplished. So Christ, who is, was exalted to the Father's right hand, is now present among his people by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit who communicates all of his saving benefits to them. So John Calvin taught that the Spirit is the bond of communion, like you've been saying, between Christ and his elect bride, the one who communicates to believers their covenant inheritance in Christ. And yeah. he just does that so well. And so, and so I, I think almost, is it fair to say, I've been thinking about this since last week, I even think in the Holy Spirit, I see so much beautiful uh, condescension. We often yeah. think of like Jesus himself condescending, and he did. He tabernacled among us, became like us. 
So also does, is there so much humility in the Holy Spirit to always be pointing God's children back to the Savior? And yeah. that's what he does so well. And so I think it's easy to underappreciate him. And this is not like underappreciating in the sense of like, we need to raise our hands more in worship or we need to be you know, more flamboyant with our expression of worship in some way. It's really to say, are we recognizing the great role of the Holy Spirit? Because we're all beneficiaries of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And that is mysterious. Like we should lean into that a little bit more. Like it's okay as Reformed Christians to have a systematic theology that is rigorous and complete and meticulous. And at the same time say, there's so much of this, I just do not understand, but I'm going to enjoy the mystery that I don't even understand completely what it means to be in Christ. I know Paul teaches us that we are, and I understand a small piece of what that is. And so I'm going to lean into that and enjoy that I have an indissoluble relationship with God that comes to the Holy Spirit. I've been thinking as well about a comedian that I affirmed before named Nate Bargetsy. And he has this whole little stick where he talks about how if he had a time machine, he went back in time. Nobody he's pretty sure would believe that he was from the future because as he walked around, like in the 1800s, let's say if he went back in time and was talking to people and said, Oh, you know, like in the future, you'll have like a little device that you can hold in your hand or in your pocket and you can talk to people around the world and pull up all the information. That person, in the 1800s would be like, really? How does that work? And he would be like, I have no idea, actually. I have no idea how it works. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. Yeah. And, and, you know, to some extent, we're all like that. There are things in our lives that we know work and that yet there's enough mystery surrounding them that we just don't understand them. Why should we not think then that there wouldn't be in this grand plan of God who is has, has thoughts and plans that are insearchable, inscrutable, that there wouldn't be mysteries that we can just lean into that are, are loving and comfortable, like a warm blanket around us, that we trust in the Savior who has made a way for us, even all the while we're saying, I don't completely understand it. So yeah. this leaning into it, I think is like, a, is actually, I'm growing to appreciate that as a beautiful thing. It's not just about faith, like trusting that who God is, who he says he is, and he's done what he says he's done. It's more about appreciating that the one who's over all things and whose thoughts are so far above ours is the one who necessarily must exist in some kind of mystery. And that, yeah. that should draw us more into him because we desire to appreciate and to experience that, that mystery, even if we know that we'll never be able to fully comprehend it or give intellectual assent to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. You know, I think that that phrasing that the Holy Spirit ministers the benefits to us, you know, it makes me think, um, I don't remember who it was that said this to me, but early on in my seminary uh, career, I was I was in some context where we were talking about kind of the role of a pastor, and the the person it was probably a professor, but they said, "Who's the most important person in a wedding or in a, in a, in in the wedding ceremony itself?" And you know, we went around the room and people kind of joked, "Well, it's obviously the bride. It's all about the bride." And he said, "No, it's it's the pastor who's doing the ceremony." And we all kind of looked a little bit funny. You know, I remember, I remember us kind of, I remember being confused about that. And the person said, without the pastor, there's no wedding ceremony. Right. Right. But in the same way, that pastor better not be the center of attention on the wedding day because it's not about the pastor, right? It's, it's about this couple coming together, but the pastor is the one, or, or even, even if you wanted to take this out of the world of the church, the, the, the justice of the peace or whoever it is that's, that's officiating the ceremony, that person is an absolutely necessary, vital component. Without that person, you just have two people making promises, which is valuable, but it's not a marriage. Mm Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit is, in some senses, plays that role 
of the officiant of the marriage of Christ and his people. Exactly. He's, he's the one who's, who's the power that's bringing that together. The pastor is the one who has the power to say, I now pronounce you man and wife. That's when you become man and wife in the eyes of the state. And legally is when he says, I now pronounce you obviously like there's a signature part of it on the, the marriage certificate, but even that is a performative act, right? Exactly. And the Holy spirit is the, is the person in the Trinity, who seals, that's why the Holy Spirit is said to be our seal and our down, you know, our down uh, payment. He seals the marriage by being the effective power that brings about that union. And, you know, it's we, we probably need to do another, well, it's going to go into a part three, I think, Jesse. <laughs> I think it's so, like, too. It's like overtime. We're in like the ninth, <laughs> we're already in like the ninth inning and it's still tied. Um, so I, I think that's probably enough for us just to sort of ruminate and marinate yes. on this idea of union with Christ for now. Yeah. And we'll, we'll, we'll probably go through the benefits of justification and glorification and sanctification pretty fast on the next episode. We'll, I mean, we'll do a whole episode, but a, a lot of that stuff, it, it ends up being the same, saying the same thing in a slightly different way about a slightly different benefit. But again, you know, like we talked about when, when we talked about the Ordo Salutis, we think about the Ordo Salutis because we are necessarily linear temporal creatures. We think about it in terms of this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens in order, in a chain. But in reality, what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit is working salvation in us by granting us new life and regeneration. And then that new life progresses through the rest of our, our temporal life on this side of eternity. And it accomplishes certain things along the way. And every single one of those things that that new life accomplishes or that new life brings about, or as a consequence of the new life, however you want to phrase that, that doesn't make me a federal vision heretic. Um, all of those things are ultimately the work of the Holy Spirit. Right. So that's what we're going to finish out this now three-part series. Maybe it'll be four, I don't know, five, maybe it'll be six, <laughs> 16 parts. I don't know. But that, that we'll finish out the series next week talking about those specific benefits of justification, sanctification, and glorification, and how union with Christ is the launching pad for all of those things. Yeah, it it's the soil that all of those things grow out of, even though... Mm. You know, this is a good analogy to sort of wrap it up. Union with Christ is the soil, not the seed of justification. Right. And and in a lot of ways, Lutheran theology gets it wrong by saying that justification is the seed that union with Christ grows out of. The Reformed want to say, no, 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 no. It, 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 those, that causation, that order of causation is flipped around. But we also at the same time don't want to say that union with Christ is the seed of justification. It's the soil that the seed grows in. It's a necessary context for justification, adoption, glorification, all of the other things that we talk about being benefits of salvation. It's a necessary context that all of those things need to be in in order for them to take place. Right. Yeah, right on. And just to clarify, so I can try to head off any kind of hate mail that would come our way. Of course, what I'm saying in particular is that the, the work of Jesus Christ is, of course, again, sufficient. Right. But it needs to be applied. And right. so by itself, work unapplied is still work accomplished, but not necessarily work efficacious. For right. or Or let's say it this way work that furnishes some kind of benefit to somebody else. So the Holy Spirit furnishes Christ himself with the gifts that are necessary to accomplish his saving work and also applies the benefits of Christ's work to those whom the Father gives to the Son. So right. the actual salvation of elect sinners only occurs by means of the ministry of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. So and there, of course, I'm just borrowing language from all of the 
the beautiful confessions that articulate yes. that. So yeah. yes, I love that we're just ending up in impromptu series that we just start talking and we're like, <laughs> my goodness, we have to stop at some point, I guess. And so we'll yeah. just have to let it spill over into yet another episode. But I think this is good because actually I think there's something about this conversation for this time of year in particular, because it's beautiful to rejoice in Jesus and the work that he's done. And it's also even better to rejoice in the work that Jesus has done that, which has been applied to us by the Holy spirit that indwells us in the here and now. So it's, it's wonderful. I think you're right. This time of year in particular, we tend to focus a lot on the life of Jesus lived and the death he died and the resurrection that he secured. And yet again, all those things like from the outside, that could be like watching a movie, right? And you could say, okay, what does that have to do with me? And how do I even get anything from that? That's where the Holy spirit comes in and does this miraculous and beautiful work. Such that, again, as Paul says, to be baptized is as if you were crucified with Christ. How does that happen? That only right. happens because the Holy Spirit has done something in us. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's not just, you know, Paul doesn't just say, it's as though I have been crucified with Christ. He says, I have yes. been yep. crucified with Christ. Amen. You're right. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is union with Christ. And and we we can describe it, we can define it, but to fully understand it is something that that I I don't know that we'll ever fully understand this side of eternity. And and I think that's that's the beauty of the gospel in a lot of ways, right? Is that you you can't understand it. You can't do it on your own. You can't generate Amen. faith on your own. You can't you can't clean yourself up. You can't make yourself legally righteous. You can't even understand what's going on without the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You know, John John 3, you can't even see the kingdom of God right. unless he gives you new eyes. So I think I think that um you're absolutely right. And I think it's it's nice. I'm finding it's kind of a nice change of pace. I hope this doesn't sound too blasphemous. It's a nice change of pace to focus on the Holy Spirit. I instead know what of, you mean. Instead of like being entirely focused on Jesus Christ. And and again, that sounds terrible and heretical, but it's nice. It's a nice, almost a nice exercise. It's kind of go, like going back to my karate thing. There's theological <laughs> muscles that I didn't realize that I had that have atrophied. And sure. so now working them a little bit, they're starting to they're starting to come back to life. And all of a sudden it's like this vibrant new look at at the way that salvation works from a different angle that we have. You know, I I I shouldn't say have never considered, but haven't considered in quite a long time. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're we're doing this. It, it easily could be seven or eight more episodes. We'll try to keep it to just one Probably more. Probably should at this point. And yeah. Again, I think that's it's. We've said this before in this podcast, but one of the things that I think important for us to remember is that when we fully embrace this mystery that we're talking about here, when we walk around it and study around it, because we know that we cannot see directly into it with and get all the pieces with complete clarity. Part of that is where we live here and now in the temporal space, but part of that is I think we'll spend all of eternity growing to right. appreciate and learn more and to love God because of what He does, has done, and who He is. More importantly, um, but we've said before. God is the only thing big enough that he, that he continually captures us with wonder the older we get. And I say that particularly given this season that we're about to enter because, you know, you hear this phrase like, well, Christmas is for the kids. Christmas is for children. It's a magical season yeah. for children. Part of the reason we say that is because as adults, we grow callous. We grow older and we lose the, the quote unquote magic of Christmas time, whatever that means, moves yeah. away from us. Because we feel like we know everything about it. It's outdone. It's overplayed. It's not really that thing that's special anymore. There's no mystery to it anymore. 
And so how wonderful that God is so big, so grand, so mysterious, that no matter how old we get, no matter how smart we think we become, not only do we never graduate from, of course, this classroom that we're talking about, but it's just so grand that he continues to fill us with wonder over and over from glory to glory. So I think that's actually a profoundly encouraging thing and something that I hope maybe draws us into this time of year as we're meditating on that in a new and a different kind of way. So I'm with you. Here's to like embracing somewhat new things, not necessarily new perspectives, but new emphasis. I'll say it that way. Yeah. And I think that that's always a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's yeah. as good a place as any to end it, Jesse, <laughs> at least for now. So for now. until next week, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. <laughs>